You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading the verses 1 through 28 of Genesis chapter 24. It begins, it says, Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out from, for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside of the town. It was towards evening and the time of the women to go out and draw water. And then he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he'd finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was a daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had lain, ever lain with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up again. And the servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. And without a saying a word, the man watched her closely to turn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. The man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithful to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. 
Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look at this passage that we've read this evening, that your Holy Spirit would use it to speak into our lives and to guide and direct us in the paths that you would like our feet to follow after. We pray for your understanding. We pray for your help. We pray for your wisdom as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the way that Warren Wiersbe introduces uh, Genesis 24 in his commentary on the passage. He says the following, the longest chapter in Genesis tells the story of how a man got his wife. While that is an important topic, and this is certainly a beautiful story, does it deserve that much space? Only 31 verses were devoted to the creation, 67 on how Rebecca became Isaac's wife. Why? That's a good question. I would say why indeed. And I think that we have to understand to begin with that chapter 24 is about more than about how Isaac and Rebecca found each other and became husband and wife. In fact, it is really packed with a lot of important theological concepts. Uh, Things like submission to God and separation from the world and even God's process by which he selects. And I would even go so far as to say a question that often arises, is it wrong to put a fleece before the Lord? Which sometimes people say you shouldn't do that. But yet I can give you a number of biblical examples where people did exactly that and God honored it. But unfortunately, when we speak today about theology, uh, our thoughts immediately go to something that's dry and, and uh, stodgy and jargonistic and discussions about abstruse topics of which we have little understanding and even less interest and things that kind of feel totally disconnected from our day-to-day life. Words like theology, words like doctrine oftentimes cause people to kind of go deaf and they're unable to hear what you're going to say. And yet that's somewhat unfortunate because when we talk about doctrine or theology, what we're talking about really is a study of life as it is viewed by God. Theology literally means the word means the study of God, but it's really studying how God looks at the universe and our place in it and how he instructs us as to how we should live our day-to-day life. Uh, and that's why, as Paul said, our problem, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we see in a mirror dimly. In other words, we're, we have an obscured view or a, a clouded view of what really is. But when we look at God's word, he tells us the way things actually are. And that's where the life of faith makes the decision that I'm going to navigate my life based upon what God says is real and true, as opposed to trying to rely upon my own ability to figure it out. Now, it's sad to say that I see so many people, I would say you probably agree, that the majority of people just rely upon their own best reasoning based upon what they've heard and what other people have told them and, and what they've kind of observed in their own life and they put that all together and mix it into a pot and make a stew and eat it and then think, I don't understand why my life doesn't turn out well. Because it's always based on the idea that somehow we have a clear vision of what things are. Even if you can see exactly what's in front of you in the short term, none of us really understand the long-term implications of the choices that we make today. But believe me, every choice you make today has a long-term implication. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, we lived uh, outside Yosemite Lake, or Yosemite Park, 
And uh, they had a lake there called Mirror Lake. I mean, it's right below Half Dome, and you, you sit there and watch Half Dome reflected in Mirror Lake. It's just placid. It's so flat, it literally is like a mirror. And being a wise kid that you know, didn't know how to control himself, I used to love as people would be sitting there around it going, ooh, isn't it beautiful to take a pebble and throw it into the middle, you know, and just mess the whole thing up. But the thing that I, I kind of came out of this with, and this is why I felt God led me to do that, uh, <laughs> was I, it always struck me how that a littlest, tiniest pebble would have this refracting circle, this thing that would go out. It would ripple out all the way to the shore, and then it would ripple back, and it ripple back and forth. And I used to be mesmerized by just watching that process. And years later, I came to realize much of our life is like that. There are things that you are dealing with in your life now that were based upon decisions that you may have made 20 years ago, and some of those you're very thankful for, some of them you regret. But that's the nature of the consequence of decisions. And so how do we get through life without getting ourselves caught up in things that we regret? And the answer really is, to really know God and to seek to follow him and be obedient to him. That the Bible says very clearly, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. And I can look at every corruptible thing. You can tell they're corruptible because they're the things in your life that stink. And I can look at all the stinky things in my life and say, you know, those are the consequences of not listening to God. And the things that I look at that are good are the consequences of having obeyed God, even at times when I thought, Lord, this is going to be the hardest thing that I have to do. But essentially, the basis of that decision is, is one of faith, because we simply look at the Word of God, and we know what God says. And, you know, the most prescient one is what God says in the twofold uh, commandments of love, that we love God and we love our neighbor. And... Jesus wraps those things together in one, saying, if you're, not, if you're loving God, you will love your neighbor, but if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. Well, I don't care who you are, I guarantee you, that is the hardest commandment in the entire Bible, <laughs> is to love people sincerely, honestly, truly, to love other people. And that's why we find that when we do it, God says, I will bless the paths that you're on, even though that may not make complete sense. I think that so many times I, I've talked with people over the years who uh, end up getting a divorce and leaving their spouse and having all those experiences. And, and so many of them have said to me later on, you know, that was probably the worst decision I ever made. But at the time, they were so committed to being free from this uh, burdensome thing in their life as they saw it that they decided even though they didn't have biblical grounds and, and God says, don't do this and I don't like this, they did it anyway because they thought it would bring them greater happiness, and yet they discovered over and over again it didn't result that way. And you can take that to a hundred different issues in your life, and you can see how that plays out over and over and over again. And so I think that when we talk about the life of someone like Abraham, one of the things that we're looking for is the decision-making process that he used to navigate his life. And it's wonderful that the Bible is so transparently honest because we see not only his good choices and the good results. I mean, I love the way the chapter starts. You know, God has blessed Abraham and just about everything in his life. But we also know there were some real painful moments. They had names with them. One was called Pharaoh. One was called Abimelech. Another one was called Hagar and Ishmael. They were decisions that he made that weren't in the plan of God for him, that he chose in his own wisdom and understanding, intellect and reasoning 
And as a consequence, those were the things that became the heartbreaks in his life. Somebody asked me the other day, I'd say, Do, you know, is it normal that as you get older to have regrets? And I thought, and I, you know, I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're still have your brains, you're not demented, uh, you're going to have regrets because every one of us, because we're sinners, can look back on things and say, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I'd made a different choice. We all have those kind of things. I, I wish I hadn't rebelled against my piano teacher, poor Hazel Bentz. She had to teach me, you know, and she'd get so frustrated, she would grab my fingers and pound them on the keys to just, you know, because I just didn't want to be there. And, and, you know, I look back on it now and saying, you know, I could have become great one day. I could have been up here leading worship and teaching at the same time. No, I really do regret that I didn't pay attention. But the point is, I don't lay awake at night bemoaning that because somehow God has been able to salvage my worthless life anyway and do something worthwhile with it. The simple fact is that, yeah, we all have regrets, but the difference is, is that our God promises that if we turn to him, he causes everything in our life to work together for the good. That he has a way of redeeming. And that's why my favorite name for God is the Redeemer. Because he redeems those things that are lost. He takes the crooked things and he makes them straight. He takes the broken things and he makes them whole. He takes even, if you even reduce a part of your life to total ashes or maybe your whole life. He says, I will take those ashes and I will make a thing of beauty out of them. And so, yeah. Honestly, we have to say, yes, I've made choices that I wished I hadn't made, but also those wrong choices become the basis for learning how to make right choices. And when we look at the end of Abraham's life, we, we begin to realize that when it was all said and done, he overcame the obstacles and he succeeded at what God called him to. And even what we're reading here tonight is part of that journey for him. That one of the very last decisions that he had to make was a wife for his son. And how he goes through that process in itself, I think, is very informative. Now, Dr. Alfred Edersheim, who uh, was one of my, <coughs> my favorites from the 19th century, um, said something once that introduced a whole idea in my mind that was pretty revolutionary for me as a young Bible student. Because one of the things that I struggled with was incomplete stories in the Bible. In other words, I mean, you, you come upon Abraham and you have to ask the question, what was he doing for the first 75 years of his life? Well, the rabbis later on added in a whole bunch of details. They'll give you a whole bunch of stories about hey, this happened and that happened. But none of that is biblical. It's just stuff that they added to fill in the blanks. Your guess is good of mine whether they're accurate or not. Or, or what happened with Moses? I mean, we, we suddenly, he's 40 years of age, really blows things up, makes a mess of everything, and has to run out of town. And then we don't hear from the next 40 years. And at, at the age of 80, when life should be over, his ministry and his service to God actually begins. And so we see him for the next 120 years, or next uh, 40 years of his life. But even when we talk about Isaac, there are two chapters dedicated to Isaac's story. <laughs> But there's 18 to Jacob, and there's 13 to Joseph. And you wonder, where's the proportionality in all of this? I mean, it, it's such an unleavened story. And what Dr. Edersheim really brought out that helped me a lot was that he says that the answer is really simple. It's not their story, it's God's story. 
In other words, we're not reading about the history of Abraham. We're not even reading the history of the Hebrew people. We're reading God's history of the kingdom of God, his plan for bringing redemption into the world. And the significance of each character in the Bible only is important in terms of how they affected that history, how they were used by God for various seasons in their life. So that we find some characters like David or even Abraham who have large portions of Scripture dedicated to their lives. And then you've got other people who we just have very brief pericopes of their life which influenced the direction of God's working in the world, but they were not the whole story. So, you know, it's, it's almost like sometimes we think the Bible should be written like a Seinfeld episode, you know? It's just all random characters coming in at various ways, and, and suddenly the story becomes about their randomness. And we think the Bible is written that way, but the Bible, when you understand, is talking about God's plan to bring redemption into the world through his son, and it all traces back from Genesis all the way through. So we only have two chapters that really tell us anything about Adam, and they don't tell us a great deal, and yet that was all that was necessary. The other years after he had brought sin into the world and, and, and it began to play out with his family, doesn't add, to have that information does not add anything to the story. I don't need to know what color his skin was, what color his hair was, or what was his favorite fruit. Those things are not essential to anything, but what I do need to understand is how that one decision by he and Eve so dramatically affected my life in the following ways. And anything beyond that is just conversation. But God is not merely engrossed in endless conversation. He really wants to communicate to us not only that this is his plan, but I would say, by extension, I would take this a little bit further and say, your life ultimately will only matter in terms of how it contributes to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that you don't matter or you're not important, or I'm not even saying that you don't have an interesting story. You may have an interesting story. But the whole point is that, as an old adage we used to always say, only that one life will soon be passed and only that which is done for Christ will last. You and I will have a lot of encounters and experiences in our life, but what has lasting impact? And when we begin to think of our lives in those terms and begin to add that to our decision-making grid, when we try to decide, what should I do? And I begin including in that question, God, what can I do with my life that would really make a difference? What would really matter? Not just in terms of my life or my children's life or my own personal happiness within this moment, but what is the thing that would have eternal consequences? Because when you begin to think in those terms, you begin to make different decisions. You know, I, I had a plan for my life, or actually my dad had a plan for my life that I was signed up for because he was paying the bills, but the whole idea was I was supposed to go on a certain trajectory with my life and when I came to Christ, I had to make a very critical decision based upon what I felt God was saying, and I had to go in a different direction, one that for a long time he thought was a serious catastrophic error on my part. Mark, why is Siri talking to me right now? <laughs> anyway. But I think sometimes when we talk like this, people begin to think, well, does the Bible really contain real history? Or is it just stories that are kind of made up to string it together. You know, 
50 years ago, there were various biblical stories that people believed were written after the fact, long after the fact. In fact, what we just read about Abraham was often cited as what they call a, a bib- biblical anachronism. And I talked last week about anachronisms, but if you didn't catch it, uh, I'll bring it back up again. Uh, but basically, the idea of anachronism is that you look at a text, an ancient text in particular, that cites an event or a place or a location that when you read it, you realize that has nothing to do with that era. It's obviously written in a later era. For example, why doesn't the Protestant church and why don't, doesn't Judaism accept the apocryphal books that are in the Catholic Bible? Why don't we accept those books that they have in there? And for the most part, the reason is because we know they're not written by the people they claim to have written them at the time in which they assert that they were written. Why? Because we have all sorts of external and internal evidence to prove otherwise. The kind of language that they use, the, the, the way they use the language, the, the places and tames and things they put in there are incorrect for the era in which they say they were written. And for a long time, especially beginning in the late 18th, 19th century, early 20th century, there's a lot of critics and scholars even who said, well, these are anachronisms. And I think one of the examples I gave last week or a couple weeks ago was the mention of Abraham interacting with the Philistines. And people said, well, the Philistines didn't show up until 1200 BC. So this had to be written after that time. Therefore, it couldn't date back to the time of Abraham, which is somewhere between 2000 and 1800 BC. You know, there's a five or six hundred year gap in here, and so therefore it must be an error until more recent times when we come to discover that actually the term Philistine simply means sea people, and there were many sea peoples, Greek tribal people, who had come down and settled all over that region long before the Philistines came down and conquered and set up their kingdom along the southern coast. So we realize that, no, actually the Bible is accurate, and what we thought we knew is what's incorrect. And we find another one of these anachronisms, supposedly, in the account we just read. And, it's, and I know you, it's right in the tip of your tongue. You're sitting there going, I know exactly what it is, right? Camels. Camels. Now, camels are very disagreeable creatures. I, I, I wouldn't recommend you get one for a pet. You know, I was just explaining to the guys, I said, camels have this unique ability. You know, a camel can, can kick you from side. They can kick out as far and as hard from the, from the side than they can straight forward. So you, you know, and they're not, they're not pleasant animals. They, they don't have the kind of personality. It's not like you, here boy, here boy. You know, it's not, they're not pleasant. They don't smell good. If you've ever ridden on them, you realize it's better to walk. And so I'm just saying, uh, but we find that camels are mentioned 24 times in the, the book of Genesis. The first time it appears is when Pharaoh gives a reward to Abraham. And it says he gives him sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. And again, the critics would have saying, well, the camels were not dis- domesticated until 900 B.C., and so if Abraham lived a thousand years before this, this, this couldn't be possibly written in the time of Abraham or contemporary with his lifetime. And yet here in verse 10, we read again, then the servant took 10 of his master's camel and left, taking with all kinds of good things with his master. It's a picture of a camel caravan. So it's not only domesticated, it's being used as a primary means of conveyance of large amounts of material. And as I said, for a long time, people said, well, this is just a, another example of, of a, an anachronism that's way off. 
And, uh, but one of the things that's nice about living in the day and age you and I live in, and we are beneficiaries of one of Daniel's prophecy. He said in the last days, knowledge would increase exponentially. And it's increased in a lot of areas. That includes the development of the science of archaeology. We know so much more about the ancient world today that people haven't known for almost the last two or 3,000 years. And it's because of not only technology, because we have things like carbon dating where we can actually identify when something was actually created, but also we can uh, find stuff that we didn't recognize was there. And after a while, there's an accumulation of data and resources that grow up. For example, uh, all of these uh, that you see here, um, this of course is a, a stone carving or plaque. This is a, 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 a a roll that they'd use as an imprint, kind of like a signature piece that you'd put in clay. These are models of, of camels. They all were made about 3000 BC, a thousand years before the time of Abraham. So that today we know that camels were domesticated far back in ancient history, as far back as we can kind of trace the earliest beginnings of civilization and were very popular. They were used for, particularly for things like uh, uh, caravanning, carrying goods from one place to another. Um, there's a saying today in archaeology. They say absolute truth in archaeology lasts 20 years. Now, if you understand, <laughs> well, in other words, things that we believed 20 years to we were certain about 20 years ago, we've discovered as we've gained in information and knowledge weren't exactly accurate, and they've had to revise it. And so it's kind of an exciting time that we live in today. I mean, it's a, we're really in a kind of a, an archaeological bonanza and avalanche of information and new discoveries. But one of the things that I find interesting, and I, and I hope you don't mind this bit of a digression, camels are one of the most fascinating creatures on the planet. They are unique in ways that, that most people don't even realize. There's no other animal like them. And there's a reason why they became so valuable and important in the Middle East and also in part, other parts of Asia and even Africa because they have an amazing ability to adapt to the climate of a desert. In fact, they're, they are large, they are strong, and they can carry very heavy loads, but also they have this very high elongated gait. Their legs are really long, their body's way up in the air, but you realize what that does is it keeps them elevated above the heat of the desert sands. Their feet are broad and padded so that where horses and donkeys will actually struggle because their feet will be sinking in soft sand, they can walk on the surface of the sand and, and never be uh, bothered by it. Additionally, their tongues and their lips are so designed that they're able to eat the thorny plants that grow in the desert. They're the only, other than the ibex and them are the only ones that I can know that can go up into some of these thorn trees that grow up around the desert and actually eat the thorns and digest them and, and actually be nourished by them. Other animals, of course, would have their tongues spur, uh, stung or split or, or poked and damaged. And they can also, it's interesting because they, when a, when a sandstorm comes, they have the ability to close their eyes because they have a double set of eyelids. They can close the inner eyelids. They can, and still be able to see out. They close their nostrils. They close their ears and their mouth so that no sand gets inside of them. So they can sit in the middle of a sandstorm without being impacted by it at the least. Most importantly, their nostrils have the ability to trap water vapor and returning it back into their body so that 
When you look at the urine that comes from a, a camel, it's like syrup. There's hardly any water in it. And they're, they're, um, when they defecate, when they go poop, <laughs> for those of you from Ritzville, when they go poop, I mean, it's like you can take it and burn it in the fire. It's so dry, it has no moisture within it because it's able to retain all of its moisture so that a camel is able to travel across the hottest, driest desert without drinking any water for any place from seven to 10 days. But when they stop to drink, stand back, because they on average can drink, each camel can drink up to 30 gallons of water in one setting. Now, I say that because it makes us really gain a new level of respect for Rebecca. <laughs> because she says, you know, she gives the, the drink to the, to the servant and then he says, I will draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. I'm pretty sure this wasn't her first encounter with a camel. <laughs> and and what, what, what caused her to make that decision? I can only assume that God just put it in their heart. Have you ever found yourself volunteering or committing to do something and then after you did it, you thought, where did that come from and why did I do that? <laughs> I mean... Because sometimes God just puts it on our hearts to do something before we have a chance to process it with our mind and build enough arguments against it. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like I remember one time praying, Lord, I just pray that you'd give me patience. And I immediately tried to put it in reverse and back out of that prayer because I, I knew, what have I just said? And, you know, I don't know why it is, because when I say, God, make me rich and happy and healthy, he doesn't answer those prayers. When I say, give me patience, man, he's right there right now. It's, it's immediate. And that's the same way I think that sometimes we look at somebody like Rebecca and saying, what, what would cause her? Was it, it certainly wouldn't have been because she was ignorant of what she was committing to do. Because think about it, 30 gallons of water. water a gallon of water weighs about eight pounds not counting the container that you have to have to round. So these are clay jars usually, which are pretty heavy. So she has to give 30 gallons of water for each of those camels, which comes out to about 2,500 pounds that she has to lift as she's filling this trough. And the trough isn't right next to the well. She has to go to the well. She has to drop the container down, pull it up, walk over, and pour it out, and do this over and over and over and over again without complaining. It reminds me of when I used to ask my kids to clean their room. They just do it without complaining. Oh, that, that's right, that was your kids, <laughs> wasn't mine. <laughs> no, I just closed the door and said, one day they'll leave. But, but also when we look at this story and we talk about, is it historically accurate? When, we, when it describes the, the, the relationship, the marriage customs of the time, it's so accurate and conforms so perfectly, not only to what we know, but also to what even exists within the Bedouin or the desert culture today. That when you go to the Middle East, especially you can go to Israel and stuff, and you see the Bedouin encampments, you're literally looking at people who are pretty much living the same way that their forefathers did, the same way Abraham did, uh, except for the Mercedes and the television set. But they have the same tents, and the same sheep, the same lifestyle, same values, same governance. And this is exactly even the way that marriages are put together because first of all, they're obviously an arranged marriage. And this was a custom that was not objectionable to anybody because essentially they felt like it was the right thing to do. In fact, one, one authority on this makes the comment, he says, among Semitic peoples generally it is held 
that as the divine father provided a wife for Adam, so the earthly father is to select a wife for his sons. Now, that's so diametric to our culture. I get that. But I would not suggest that our system is all that good. I know that some of you are saying, you know, uh, you know, I want the freedom to choose the person I'm going to spend my life with. Talk to people who spent their life with a, with a person and ask them if their parents could have made a better decision. The simple fact is that oftentimes parents have a better idea, unclouded by hormonal influences. They have a better idea of somebody who's going to be a joyful companion for life than you would for yourself. Now, a lot of us, we didn't have Christian parents, and they not only weren't interested in doing something like that, they weren't available. But I know in our case, my wife and I, we just simply prayed, is this what you want, God? Is our, and we let God be the matchmaker in our life. I mean, that's, I often tell young couples, put, uh, put, uh, uh, put Isaac on the altar. Be willing to give up whatever you love and whatever you want to God and say, Lord, if this is for me, then let it be mine. But if it's not, then let it not be mine. And many of us, again, we're afraid because when we love something or a person so much and we find that pleasure in being around them, the idea of not having them as part of our life is simply terrifying. But I think more of us can say that some of the worst decisions we made were romantic decisions because we were basing our judgment on our ability to see only so far. We didn't realize that when we tossed that pebble into the pond, it was going to ripple out in ways and in directions that we had never foreseen, we had never anticipated. I know I sound like I'm terribly unromantic, but, you know, it is what it is. But secondly, marriages were, that were contracted were contracted within a very small circle of people. You married within your kinship groups. And in fact, one of the writers said, most preferred marriage, the most preferred marriage is with the father's brother's daughter or your cousin, uh, <laughs> which sounds a lot like what was going on here. It was actually his father's brother's granddaughter, a second cousin, but that's what Rebecca was. She was a cousin. And the idea that you would marry within your family circle, the only real requirement even today is that the marriage be between people who have equal status in the culture. But there's again this idea that you marry somebody who is part of your cultural experience. One of the things that young people oftentimes don't understand is that you don't marry a person, you marry a family. And, you know, oftentimes we, we ignore the dynamics of a family because we're in love with the person or attracted to the person. But if we would step back for a moment and look at the dynamics that are going on in the family dynamic, only thing I can say is it's only a matter of time before those dynamics will become part of your dynamic as well. And if you don't like those dynamics, then you should question that because it becomes more difficult. But that's part of the idea of these arranged marriages with a kinsman relationship because it tended to make them more homogenous. They already had the same value system. They had the same interest. And I talked about it extensively last week. Abraham wanted his son to marry someone who would honor the things that his father had honored. He didn't want him marrying into the Canaanites who had a whole different value system and a whole different objective to their life, a whole different religious system with practices that would have been abominable to them. And so he basically said, let's find somebody, we need to find somebody who is part of our kinship group and who shares that with us. 
Uh, the third thing, and I found this kind of amazing, was <laughs> kind of fascinating, is the betrothal itself. How do you ask somebody in this culture to get married? And you usually used a go-between. Uh, <laughs> in fact, one writer put it this way. He says, a man does not expose himself to refusal. Isn't that right, guys? Isn't the most terrifying thing about asking a girl to marry you or even out on a date is that she'll say, are you kidding? <laughs> are you crazy? Do I look like I'm that dumb and stupid? No. You know, it's, it's that, that, that fear of rejection. Most women don't understand how terrified men are rejection. That's why in junior highs they call them dances, but we call them stand-arounds. The girl would be on one side, the boys on the other side. We dare each other. You go ask her. No, I don't want it. You, you know, it's because refusal is a terrifying thing, and we don't outgrow it. We don't outgrow it. We, we even carry it into our marriage relationships. That's why the hardest thing for men to deal with in a marriage is where their wife has kind of a, a rejecting or disrespectful spirit to him because there's nothing that can crush a man's spirit more than feeling like he's not respected by his wife. You know, it's kind of a, we get into this kind of crazy cycle sometimes because women basically need to feel that they're loved. And if they feel they're loved, then they respect the man that they feel loves them. But if they feel that he doesn't love her, then she responds by showing him disrespect. And he, in turn, shows his, his feelings of disrespect by withdrawing and not showing her his love. And then the downward cycle begins because the more he doesn't love, the more she disrespects, the more she disrespects, the less he loves and then end up uh, in, a, in a terrible crashing sound in their life. But basically, to get around this, he said, he, if he is un, not certain that his proposal will be received, he sends someone to the girl's home to make a preliminary inquiry. The messenger can also ask the girl's relative directly if they wish to give her to such and such a man in this manner, preparing them for a proposal. If they answer that he is welcome, he is sure that they wish the marriage to take place. And the usual thing is that the formal request for the bride is not made by the young man himself, but by one or several friends or relatives who act as intermediaries. We see this happening here in this case with Isaac. We'll see the exact same thing happening with Jacob when he marries the daughters of Laban. So it, it was part of their cultural uh, uh, um, dynamic. But last of all, there was the bride price. In these cultures, if you wanted to marry a girl, you had to pay for the right. Now, in some cultures, it's the other way around. Uh, our culture, it's come back to that now. You have to pay for the right. But the bottom line is that the bride price or wedding dowry is given as a compensation to the parents of, for the loss of the bride's labor. <laughs> in other words, everybody worked. If she's not here, who's going to draw the water for the camels, right? She, she's gone off with that guy. She was our best water drawer. I always loved her because she could draw water better than anybody that I knew. Well, there had to be that compensation. So it's interesting. Again, I say that just for kind of a factual background that when we begin to look at what we call these internal evidences of the authenticity of the story, we begin to find that everything that's described here is as it would have been and should be, telling us that this wasn't just a parable or a mythological story or a made-up short story. This, this happened in real time in a very real way. But what I want to focus on as, as we kind of, as I kind of bring this baby in for a landing, is, is not on Rebecca or even on Isaac, and certainly not the camels or marriage customs, but I want to focus on Abraham's determination to find the right wife for Isaac. It's basically the idea of separation. Um, we'd already saw previously 
in Abraham's legacy and his life story that he had put that legacy at risk at least three times that we're told of, as I mentioned with Pharaoh and with Abimelech and even with Hagar and Ishmael. But now as he comes to the end of his life, it seems like, especially after the test that we talked about last week in chapter 22, that there's a, a clarity in Abraham's understanding. And that's one of the things that I would just encourage those of you who are, are, are aging along with me. I find that the older I get, the more clear things become. That when I was younger, I, things were often very confusing. And when I said I was walking by faith, I mean, I literally was saying, God, I don't know where this is going to lead or how this is going to work out. I'm just trusting you. But as you get older and you get a lot of experience under your belt and you begin to understand God's ways. You know, I love it when John says in, in his first letter to the church, he says, I, I he said, says, you fathers, you're basically, you're blessed of the Father in heaven because you have known the Father from the beginning. There's something about having known God, having walked with God, having this historical experience with God in your life, that every day that you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a depth of understanding that is building up inside of you. It may feel incremental, but it's significant, it's serious, and it's one of those kind of things where you just have an inward knowing, not because you know what the future is or how it's going to turn out, but you just know how God is. I just know how he is. You know, my wife and I sometimes talk about knowing each other as husband and wife for so many years, that there's things that I expect from my wife, not because... That's my expectation, but I just know who she is. I know how she deals with things. I know how she makes decisions. I know how she keeps house and what she expects with a thousand and one different things. There's just that knowing that comes from intimacy and depth of relationship. There's a historical bonding, and God wants you to live your life with that kind of experience. You know, and you may be 60 years old and you don't even know what I'm talking about, and I don't want to be discouraging because you can still learn that. I think sometimes the older you get, the faster God puts you on the track. But the simple fact is that that, that is really a place of, of greatest confidence and security that you can experience in life. Because you simply know that, as we often say, God's got this. <laughs> I don't know how he's got it. I don't know how he's going to deal with it. But God doesn't bring us to the hour of birth and not deliver God doesn't put us in situations where he just leaves us out to dry. He is with us through thick and thin. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, though, though I walk through the water, I won't be drowned. Though I walk through the fire, I will not be burned, as Isaiah said. Will you just learn those experiences? How? By thinking you're going to drown <laughs> or by going through a burning experience in your life. You, you learn from those experiences that God can be trusted. And you can trust in that trust and rest in that trust and know that even though I can't see the end of the story, I know that he will bring it to a beautiful and a perfect conclusion. And that's interesting because, you know, people like Augustine and even Plato used to talk about how that, that spiritual life was growing closer to eternity in the sense that you're drawn to the beauty of the perfect and there's, there's this thing in your life that happens as you grow in your relationship with God and you begin to discover the, the perfectness of everything he does, that everything he does is good and everything he does is wonderful and everything he does is for the good of you and for everyone else and you can just trust that and the more you experience that, the yearning of your heart is to be with the thing that you love the most and what we love is that which is beautiful. I mean, that's just a simple dynamic of how God created us. We love something when it's beautiful. 
And when we love God and we see him in the beauty, we see the beauty of his holiness, holiness no longer becomes something that we try to escape. Holiness no longer becomes a straitjacket that means I can't have fun. No, holiness is this, this wondrous and beautiful thing and you just want to behold it. You want to look upon it and you want to be as close to it as you possibly can so that you're not governed by a set of rules or regulations. It's not because I have to do this because this is required or this is what the Bible says. You do it because that's, that's where he is. That's where he is. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, years ago, there was a newspaper in, in London had a had an essay contest that basically one of those, in one paragraph, answered the following. And the question was, what's the shortest trip between London and York? And... Uh, uh, they got all you know, thousands of submissions, and, but they picked one out of all of them. They said the shortest distance between uh, London and York is a good companion. <laughs> I thought to myself, isn't that the perfect answer? You know, as I was trying to explain, the, I was talking about Sunday, the arbitrariness of time and how we think we know time, but we really can't see it. We just have conceptions of it. But, you know, it's like if you're in a very boring lecture or you're having to do something that you just absolutely don't enjoy, the clock stands still. You know, it freezes in place. I mean, 10 minutes can seem like 10 years. But when you get around somebody that you enjoy being with, time flies. Time flies very quickly. Well, in a small way, you've got to understand that the same way we become limited in our understanding about the idea of being close to God and following God and listening to God, when you begin to discover the beauty of his holiness, that holiness is not something that you fear or feel obligated to do. It's, it's the most beautiful thing, and you are drawn to that beauty, and you want to be near it. That's Abraham's life. As he, he steps back, and, and in his mind, he says, the thing that I know, need to do in order for God to plan to come to pass is I have to find an appropriate bride for my son. And that's why we have that statement repeated three times. You know, you will, get a wife, you will not get a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Make sure that you do not take my son back there either. Do not take my son back there. The whole concept is the idea that we find saved by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 when he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Now, many people have interpreted that saying you shouldn't, you know, be nice to hang out with or have friends who are non-Christians. That has nothing to do with this passage. <laughs> it's not talking about casual relationships or even friendships, but what it's saying being yoked together is a very specific metaphor. You had oxen that you yoked together and they were in the same line, the same row, pulling the same field, doing the same labor. They were yoke fellows. And the idea is, he says, that, that marriage more than anything else is being yoked together, that you basically don't live together so that the other one can make you happier, but you live together so that you can fulfill the work. Together you might pull the yoke that harvests what God wants to bring to pass in and through your life. That's the purpose of a, a marriage relationship. Oh, I mean, there's some wonderful benefits above and beyond that. But the problem is that many people marry for the pleasures and they're disappointed once they've satiated the pleasures. And then there's this diminishing return, a lot like using drugs or alcohol. The more you do it, the less you get out of it. But when you 
commit to this being yoke fellows in Christ as husband and wife, and you're, you're striving for the same thing together, that you have more in your life than just the thrill and the pleasure. It's, it's this unity and this co-fellowshipping together that goes beyond anything that you can find in this world outside of our union with Christ. And the whole thing is that I, I don't want to make, I don't want to get yoked up with something that's going to take me away from the beauty of his holiness. That's the simple plan. I mean, why I don't want anything to take me away from that. I want to continue to pursue that. And so it becomes an easy decision. Uh, sorry, not interested. Not interested. Because I know nothing good can come out of that. What I, was sad to me is I find this concept is being lost by the church in the West today, that especially amongst the young people. And I thought, asked myself, what is missing in the lives of so many young people? And I think that first and foremost that most young people today don't see their life in terms of God's plan for their life. They, they see their life as being for themselves and how they can find their best life now. But they don't understand that, no, you were created by God for God. And, and if you try to live your life outside of that calling, you're going to be disappointed with your life. I guarantee it. But secondly, I find that oftentimes as parents, we fail because we don't instill that value in them the way that Abraham instilled it in Isaac. You see, we don't find Isaac arguing about his father's decisions. In fact, we'll see later on that when Rebekah comes, and it's interesting, the name Rebekah, or in Hebrew, it's Rivka, what it, what it means is to ensnare. And the idea is behind it is not that she's, that was a woman's a trap, <laughs> black widow. No, <laughs> the term is that, that she is so beautiful that she captures your heart. You're just ensnared by, by her. And when Isaac, when Isaac sees her, you can tell as we get to it next time that his reaction is this guy, <laughs> he sees her and, and he's, he's really happy. But <laughs> it says, I love the way it puts it, he was comforted after the death of his mother, Sarah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> but I think that the story also illustrates, and I, I'll just kind of wrap it up with this, that the important role that fathers play in the lives of their children, especially in the lives of their sons. I was just reading two studies that have just been completed that are really fascinating because they found that when a mother goes to loan, with, takes the kids to church by herself, and that's the case for a lot of women, have husbands who aren't interested in the things of God, and when she takes those kids, that when those kids become adults, that only 2 to 3% of them will continue in the church. And I can just tell you in my 35 years here, I can't even begin to count how many young men I've known who grew up in this church because their mom brought them every Sunday. A lot of times they were single moms. And when the kids grew up, we never see them until something really tragic happens in their life. They found that, secondly, that when both mom and dad attend church together, that 41% of the young men will continue attending church for the rest of their life. What was most surprising is when mom stays home and dad brings the kids to church, 44% of the young men continue to attend a church. 
And I simply, I, I try to reason this out. Well, how's, how, why is that? And I think it, it kind of speaks to the different roles that men and women have in a, in a parenting role. I mean, kids get a sense of security from their moms. They, you know, I mean, yeah, we always talk, that baby has a face that only a mother can love. And that's, there's something about mother's love. It's unconditional. <laughs> you know, it just, you're, you're loved all your life, good, bad, and ugly. You are just loved. Dads, on the other hand, are a source of our sense of identity. It's not just accidental that we take the names of our fathers, both men and women, because that's basically our source of our identity, who we are. When a young man goes to church with his mom, he loves his mom and she loves him and he learns the things of God, but in the end, his identity is not from her. His identity is from his dad, who has no interest in the church. My wife and I have in our family, extended families, families that are just like this, where mom has been this faithful servant of God for decades, and the children have all turned away from Christ because dad never went. He stayed home and did his thing. And it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing. And I, I mean, you know, you, you, I don't believe they're beyond salvation, but I'm just saying we push ourselves in that direction. But what's even becoming more disturbing is that in our day, church itself is becoming an optional activity. And, um, and I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying this because I, I, want, a, I want a bigger audience. But what we're beginning to say is that, that what we're doing right here is optional. It's of secondary importance. I, I don't really need to be involved with the body of believers you know, I, I, I do it if it's convenient, I'll show up if there's not a good game on or if I don't have something else I'd rather do, you know, uh, then I will, you know, I'll show up because, and one of the things I've witnessed over the years is when the, when the wintertime comes and there's no more fishing, there's no more hunting, there's no football games, football's over, um, you know, we find that attendance goes up and uh, until March Madness starts. But nonetheless, it's, it's like we, we see this, we call it the two humps of the camel. You know? It goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. And it's, 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 in many ways, it's weather related. Now, I get it. I get it. I get cabin crazy too. But the problem is that we're communicating something by the decisions we make. Our choices are a statement. Our actions are a statement. So that I know when I was a little boy and, and Sundays, we didn't, have, we didn't have TV when I was real young. Uh, our first TV, I was seven years old when we got our first TV and I used to get up at six in the morning and stare at the test patterns. Anybody else have that experience? <laughs> stare and stare at the test pattern and wait for uh, Howdy Doody to start. But so Sunday, I didn't have anything to do. One of my friends invited me to go to his church. I said, oh, sure, cool. So I went to church. I started going to church. Five years of age, I'd go to church every Sunday because that was the thing you do. And I remember I'd walk through the TV room and my dad would be sitting there in his chair and um, he'd go, wait a minute. And he'd reach in his wallet and he'd pull out a dollar bill and he says, here, put this in the offering. It's good for business. <laughs> and it's like, his mind was, they'll see my kid putting a buck in there and they'll go, because in those days a buck was actually worth a dollar. But... Uh, you know, it was just kind of the crazy thing. But what did that communicate to me as a kid? Uh, it has nothing to do with anything, really. And when I got old enough to do something else and found something that was interesting, I did it. And never missed it, never thought anything was wrong with it. Because that's the example that was set for me. 
My dad was workaholic, and he taught me how to be one as well. See, Abraham's godly standard of separation was a priority in his life. That idea of, of living, and I say separation, I mean not allowing anything to compromise the journey that he was on. And that defined his life. Even though he wasn't perfect, he was persistent. In the same way that you and I aren't perfect, but we're persistent. But the question isn't, are you persistent? The question is, what are you persistent in? What is it that you're persistent in? Mark and I were talking the other night about just, you know, spending time in the Word and reading. And, and you know, I'm at that point in my life that, I don't know, I can't start the day without reading the Word. I just can't. I mean, I don't want to say that's noble or I'm super spiritual. It's just I've come to this understanding that if I don't do that, I'm, all, I'm, starting, I'm starting the whole day in reverse. <laughs> or it's like trying to pull out a driveway in your third gear. You know, you wonder, why, why is this thing lugging up like this? It just is not a good way to go through the day. And by the time I reach the end of it, I'm sitting there going, oh, man. I'll never do that again. So you, you get to this place, okay, maybe i got to get up earlier today, but I just have to be in your word this morning, Lord. i just got to spend that time because of what it does. You do that, and, and it sends a message to your children and your children's children and their children that they grow up realizing this is something that was part of the identity of our family constellation. This is what we do. These books that we read, this, this music that we listen to, you know, the kind of programs we choose to watch and not to watch, you know, all those kind of things become part of the fabric that builds up around a child's life. If you complain about the restrictions of being a Christian and all that, then it's, you, you, it's not going to be very effective because your kids are going to grow up wondering why, why are you such a loser? <laughs> you know, people do that to you. But when it becomes just part of your life, this is who we are. I remember my son Ben told me, he says, I always have people at church ask me, so what's your dad really like when he's home? <laughs> he said, it was so weird to me as a kid. I'd go, well, he's just my dad. You know, it's like, what you see here is what you see there. It's as bad there as it is here. You know, it's like, and, they, and, and it was like never, but the bottom line is you, just, I mean, Mark and I were talking about this tonight. He said, I, he says, it cracks me up how some people look at you and how they see you and think about you. And he says, you know, they, I, th I think he was being complimentary. Weren't you, Mark? You weren't putting me down. Okay. Uh, but his whole point was, you're just who you are. You're just who you are. This is who you are. Here, there, everywhere. It's just who you are. And the whole point is that when we focus on just being with Jesus, then we're free to be just who we are because that's all God wants you to be is who you are. It's just that simple. And there's a tremendous freedom in it. You don't have to feel like you have to measure up to something or prove something or display something. You can just be who you are. I'll stop talking. I should have stopped eight minutes and 57 seconds ago. This is a carryover. Give you a little bonus for next Sunday or next Wednesday. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to really kind of uh, grasp these concepts, Lord, in our lives. 
that, Lord, we, we don't need another set of rules, another legalism. We don't need something to make us feel guilty or ashamed or to feel like we're failures and uh, something to add to our inventory of regrets. What we de- do know, need to know, Lord, is that, that the path of holiness is, is, is the path of beauty. There's a path of freedom. It's a path of liberty. It's a path of freedom and joy and fullness. And Lord, that your desire is that our lives be abundant. The devil lies to us and tells us the abundant life is found someplace else. But Lord, help us to know in our hearts the truth of the matter is that in the presence of God, you said, is fullness of joy. In thy presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. Lord, help us to yearn for that beauty, that which is most attractive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.